Hello everyone, I'm Troy Dodds and welcome to the On The Record podcast presented by The Western Weekender. On this podcast, I'm joined by special guests who all have such great stories to tell about Penrith and the role they've played in our city. They are Penrith stories told by Penrith people. Today, my special guest is Bernard Zool. Bernard is one of Australia's best-known music writers, particularly known for his work with the Sydney Morning Herald. He was also a reporter with the Penrith Press newspaper during a very important period in our city. I really hope you enjoy our chat. Bernard, thanks for joining us. My pleasure. Question we always ask to kick it off, uh, where and when were you born? I was born 1965 in very west western Sydney in Mauritius, uh, tiny island off the coast of Madagascar, off the coast of South southern africa and a dot in the indian ocean Um, but i came to australia in 68 Uh, initially lived in in a in a south or i don't know what they call it then um, canterbury campsie Mm -hmm. uh, where my father became a canterbury bulldog supporter uh, and i wisely didn't but we (laughs) moved out to uh to southwest sydney when i was about uh, 10 So, so chester hill which is Canterbury Bankstown Fairfield crossover point. Yeah, no so, Chester uh, Hill very well. My uh, my grandmother and my dad actually grew up in Bass Hill, so not not far away. Yeah, um, Terry Lamb territory. In- indeed, indeed. Uh, so, so what was that part of Sydney like in the? I guess this is what the mid seventies. Mid seventies, yeah. Um, it was well. Initially, it seemed like the end of the earth because um, I remember the first time we drove from Campsie out to to Chester Hill it seemed like we were driving for three or four hours. Mm. Um, I was young. It seemed very long. <laughs> uh, but it was just it was just regular suburban Sydney, you know, uh, fibro houses and uh, uh, big yards. Uh, people had uh, not much in the, the yards. Um, we, we uh, you know, been a sort of fairly typical migrant family, put in some, uh, some non-traditional... Uh, fruit trees in there and um, around us it was initially it, it was mostly your kind of standard uh, sort of white faces everywhere we mm. were one of the few non-white faces but uh, it quickly became uh, an area for next generation migrants uh, so a lot of a lot of people of my generation started in the inner part of Marrickville, Campsie, Canterbury, thereabouts, and then moved out to places like Chester Hill, and then moved further on out to, um, you know, Blacktown, Penrith, and places like that. Given uh, the career that you ended up following, did you grow up in a in a musical household, a media household? Was that was was that where it came from, or or, or not so much? Not really. Uh, my parents had about ten records, um, I think, and um, almost all of them were rubbish. Um, <laughs> <laughs> they they had two good records, um, one of which was uh, uh, was the greatest hits. I forgot all all of a sudden quickly forgot who it was. Um, but the other one was a really bad record, but I used to love it because I, I could put it on to clear parties, and I did do it <laughs> once to clear a party. And that was George Liberace, who uh, no one remembers, but he was the piano accordion playing brother of uh, the piano playing Liberace. Right. Uh, and let me tell you, there's nothing like piano accordion to, to really remind you why you like or don't like music. Indeed. Um, uh, but no, my, my family wasn't really, I mean, my parents um, and everyone in sort of my broader family, at the end of parties, uh, someone would bring a guitar out and they'd be singing songs. And it was often sort of 60s country songs. Uh, they liked they liked sad songs, Mauritians. Uh, so people would be drinking drinking a couple of whiskeys by the end of the night and, and singing Living on a Jet Plane or something <laughs> like that. Uh, but uh, my, my music obsession, obsession came... Um, Separately from that, um, in fact, I was looked on as a little, a little bit weird. So, so, where did that come from? Was that through school, or, uh, or generally, where did the passion uh, start to strike? Oh, I don't know. Uh, I, I, it just clicked for me. Uh, and then, when I went to school at Fairfield, um, I uh, met a couple of guys who were similarly obsessed, and we sort of fed each other's obsessions and and. Um, introduced each other to things that I, I very very quickly fell into into a love of music and then talking about music which uh, would eventually years later prove useful uh, when I started to write about music 
And indeed, when you start writing about music is is the mid-80s. Uh, tell me how that came about, because you became a freelancer, which, I mean, we hear the term freelancer, you know, pretty regularly these days. In fact, there's probably more freelance journos than, uh, than full-time employed ones in, in many ways. But in those days, um, how did you to pursue the career? Where did, it, um, where did it kick off for you in the 80s? Well, um, as I said, I, I used to, I was obsessed with it. There's a friend and I uh, would, uh, well, the, I'll, I'll preface this by saying you'll understand why we didn't have girlfriends. Uh, we would sit in in his room or my room and play music all the time and dissect it and talk about who these people were and why we were enjoying it and what it meant and what what might what could be done with this. And it's just typical obsessives. Um, and as I said, nobody else seemed that interested in talking to us, so we we did that instead. And uh, what we used to do was read all the music magazines as well. And one day we were sitting there bitching about someone's writing, um, a guy who actually ended up becoming a really good friend of mine. But and he was the same age as us, but he seemed he must have he seemed older to us. We we're reading and thinking, God, why don't they get some people who really know what's going on yeah. instead of this guy? Um, and I thought, okay, I'll do that. Um, so I. I um, went out, I, I bought a record that I wanted to review and um, read this review and thought, that's it, I'm going to do it. The, but the day I finished it, I picked up the new issue of the magazine I was going to and there was a review by, of all people, that guy who we'd been bitching about. <laughs> Damn it. So I thought, I'm going to do something. Now, this is in the mid-80s. mid, in the mid 80s. Records would come out in Australia at, at completely different times to, to when they mm. came out in the States. Um, could be weeks, could be months in the States and the UK, Europe. Um, so there were these places called import stores where you paid extra, but they, they brought in a small number of records uh, that were uh, weeks or months in advance of release in Australia. So I went out and I bought one and I took it home. It was the REM album, uh, Fables of the Reconstruction. Took it home, bought it on the Friday, went uh went from work to the record store, bought it, took it home, spent the whole weekend uh, listening to it and wrote a review. And on the Monday morning, I crossed Hyde Park from the office I was in to uh, to the offices of this magazine, thinking I'd just drop it in at the in their inbox. But instead, the acting editor, who um, was this English guy, and of course, being English in the mid-'80s, writing about music, he, uh, he was automatically far cooler than I could ever be. <laughs> he, he met me at the door. Um, and before I could drop it off, he, he stood there reading. He said, oh, yeah, all right, we'll run that next week. Um, and I went back to my office thinking, did that just happen? Um, so that's that's how I started writing. So I started writing for them and then some other music magazines and Rolling Stone. Um, and then I got a call from editor of, of the entertainment supplement, uh, the Herald called Metro, uh, asking me if uh, I'd like to write a story for them. And I thought, sure, I'll, you know. I'll sling a bit of work to you, Sydney Morning Herald, the biggest <laughs> paper in the country. Yeah, okay. You mentioned an office there. So what what were you doing, I guess, for a crust at that point before the, the music um, stuff sort of started to come uh, for you? Well, I'd, I'd just dropped out of law um, and um, thought I wanted to – I'm going to be a journalist. The problem was um, – I'd wanted to be a journalist all through school. You know, I used to read the Herald when I was about 11, 12, and think, uh, this, is, this is so cool. And I'd go into the city, and, and uh, as the train pulled in at Central, I'd see the, the Herald sign um, over their building in the, the old building there, and I thought, one day I'd really like to be there. Um, but I had the marks for law, and you know, being a, being a wog kid, if you got the marks for law or medicine, you're going to do law or medicine. Otherwise, you're a disappointment to the family. Sure. So I did that. But I dropped out of law, um, and I couldn't get straight back into uni because I, I was neither straight out of school nor mature age. And so I thought I'll, I'll just I'll just get a job until I can uh, I can figure a way to get into journalism. Um, so I was working at the tax office, uh, and. Um, that afforded me a decent income and a bit of time, sometimes during the day, but mostly at the weekend and nights to, to do some writing. And that's, that's, where, I was, um, that's where I was hoping to develop a, a life outside, outside the office. So, so what did your family think about uh, no, no law, no medicine um, and this caper of uh, writing music? Um, it didn't go well. <laughs> it didn't go down well at all. Um, years later, my father said to me that uh, he was... 
she was not happy because uh, one of the reasons we came to Australia was that uh, these kids could get to uni because there wasn't a university in Mauritius. Um, so not a, not a big hit. Um, but you know, in the end, I had to do it. It's just, there it was no point sticking with law. And uh, uh, even though it meant dropping out of university, it, it seemed the only sensible thing to do. Now, you freelanced for about three or four years there, and then in uh, in 1989, uh, Penrith comes into your life. So how does this come about, and how does uh, working at the, the Penrith Press newspaper, which at the time, indeed, the, uh, the biggest newspaper in town, how does that all come about? That was the, a life-turning point um, in so many ways. Uh, I, I'd gone overseas um, backpacking around America and Europe from, in '88. Uh, into early 89 and um, I was trying to get work in London thinking oh, you know I've been working as a journalist for a couple of years now I should be able to get a job because I'm a complete idiot uh, in London there were uh, more journalists per square kilometre than um, uh, than there were footballers for example um, and that's a lot and I applied for jobs at BBC in places I couldn't get it but I was doing some work for the Herald while I, while I was in London uh, phoning in copy from a phone booth across the road from, right. from the the tiny room my girlfriend and I were in. Um, so standing in the phone booth 11 o'clock at night, freezing in December, uh, December London. Um, and I thought, I could stay here and get a job in a, in a pub like so many others of my traveling friends were or, or you know, in some shop, but I want to be a journalist. There's no point. I'm not going to waste my time here doing that. So I came back to Australia and applied for jobs. And I had experience writing, but I had no experience working in, in, in a paper, uh, which is one of the reasons I couldn't get a job in London. Mm. And I applied for this job at the Penrith Press. And the editor at the time, this fantastic woman, uh, Judy Prisk, who probably still remembered by a lot of people, uh, she somehow saw something in me and gave me a job, not even as a cadet, but as a... Um, as a greater journalist, a sort of you know, um, actual qualified journalist, and um, took me on. And I was the junior in the office. The Brad Earl was the senior writer and the sports writer. I've been a, um, a local paper, a suburban paper. You did everything. Mm. Brad would and, later go on to be the editor of the Penrith Press too, many yeah. years later. <laughs> yeah, you know, a, a, a good bloke who really committed to, to what he was doing. Working with Judy and Brad fired up what already was an enthusiasm for newspapers into a passion and uh, learning learning my, my craft, which is basically what it was. You know, I learned, learned how to write proper stories, not just, um, not just one-off interviews and you know, covered local politics and human interest stories and, um, uh, and sport. And uh, when Brad moved on, I became the senior writer, which meant covering been the sports editor as well. You got to have all these exalted titles. There were three of us in the office, but you know, <laughs> I was senior writer and sports editor. And as a sports freak and as an arts freak and as a, a big consumer of things like politics, it was perfect. Um, and you know, there were some really interesting characters in in Penrith at the time. What was Penrith like? How do you feel Penrith was? Because a lot of we've had guests on the podcast from around that time, and there's a feeling that that's around the time that the city of Penrith is is emerging from that country town vibe to to becoming uh, a real sort of city of Sydney, a part of the city of of Sydney. Uh, what was what was it like for you in that period? That's definitely how I how I felt it. Uh, it it was not not just a a suburb of Sydney. It was this growing centre. Uh, Parramatta was already a significant alternative to North Sydney and Sydney as, as centres. But Penrith started to feel like a place that was moving. I mean, the, while I was there, the Jones Sutherland Centre was built. Um, and, of course, along with that comes all the attendant things when you get a, a growing city, which is big questions about, is this where money should be spent? Um, um, do we really want to spend all this much money on a Bosendorfer piano? Um, and... The exciting thing about that is that tells you things are happening, things mm. are growing. Um, and Penrith really felt like it was it was moving along. It, um, it was turning into a place where people would come and expect, uh, expect more. 
and, and that obviously is a is helped along by you mentioned sport uh, during your three years at the Penrith Press. The uh, the Penrith Panthers, of course, make two grand finals, uh, losing in nineteen ninety and winning in nineteen ninety one. What was covering those like? I imagine at the time uh, a pretty busy time at um, at the Penrith Press. It was pretty busy, um, not least because one thing about Penrith's growth was that it still was a place where it could be dominated by a big, uh, big individual or a big organisation, and, and you know, Panthers dominated um, uh, money-wise, employment-wise, uh, and of course uh, with with football. So, covering the the Panthers at the time was was a big thing and it got me to my first grand finals uh the, the first two grand finals i went to were 1990 1991 so uh, i'm extremely grateful for that but the the excitement in uh, in the town in the in the, the sort of the the wider area uh for those two grand finals was uh, so palpable and it it made everything feel like it had more of an edge, more of a purpose, um, whatever you were covering, because there was just this sense that this was a place where not only was the population growing and business growing and this art center coming, and uh, but uh, the world of sport in different ways was focusing on this. And you just felt like this is where things were at. And I guess at that point as well, journalism, um, you know, it's taking off for you, but the actual the actual art of writing and, and whatnot, you, you would say that that's, you know, you, you learnt most of that at the at the Penrith Press in that era, the actual, I guess, vibe of a newsroom and, and that sort of thing that, that would help you later on? Learned, definitely learnt my craft. Just learnt how to do those basic things, learnt how to construct a story, learnt how to conduct an interview, uh, learnt how to research and prepare and and you know learn how to handle people who might not have any reason to listen or respect you i mean we had uh, state or federal ministers who would come in um and you know the media were there they'd want to talk to the media but they want to talk to the daily telegraph or mm. the, the Sydney morning herald or someone like that penrith press or the penrith star they'd look at you and go yeah all right yeah, we'll throw you a bone um but you still had to act and ask the same sort of questions and and more local focus, but you still had to be a proper journalist dealing with them. And so uh, learning how to do that was a big thing. And this is a Judy, Judy Priss created this environment there where she said, yes, we're a suburban paper. Yes, we're, um, we're free. And uh, we're, we, we don't have the clout of these other places, but we are of this community. And, if we treat the community with respect, they'll respect us for what we're doing. And it made such a difference that um, there weren't a lot of suburban papers at the time who took the idea of being a, a genuine newspaper as seriously as Judy made the Penrith Press. Um, I'm, I'm not putting down other people um, because they did what they did mm. uh, and it was appropriate for, the, for their place and time. But the Judy had this vision of, of it as a, as a place, as a newspaper that, that would challenge and would um, ask questions and, and would bring a big city focus to a smaller city. Um, so all those things fed into my, as I said, my passion for newspapers my idea of newspapers as a as a general good for the world um, and my desire to to write and and deal with those things in a, in a way that reflected both my personality uh, and the environment we were in and later on while I might move to a, you know, a central city based paper or write for places overseas my idea was always that you would write for a community uh, and that's what i learned in penrith now you mentioned um moving on to to, to bigger things and, and most local newspaper journals do have an eye on working for for metro media and, and bigger newspapers and for you that comes along in 1992 and in fact it kicks off a a very very long career at the sydney morning herald how did it come about uh well I uh, I thought 
I probably could have applied a year early, but I don't think I was quite ready. So I applied and I thought, give it a go. You never know them. There might be need. Um, and got an interview. Came in with enough experience so that even though I was a bit older than the new people who were coming into the paper, I got a shock when I got to the paper and found so many people I've been reading for the previous few years were barely into their 20s because they'd come in as cadets. Mm. And here I was in my mid-20s, um, late, heading to late 20s, coming in there um, and thinking I was an old man by then. Uh, but they will, it was the beginning of, in a similar way to what was happening in Penrith, uh, this was the time when newspapers were expanding uh, staff uh, sizes. Though a couple of years after I joined, the, the paper went colour. Uh, we uh, I then was editing that, that that section that I'd first written for Metro, and that went from a, you know, a dozen pages on greeny blue paper uh, to 48 pages on white with huge amount of colour and and covering all kinds of things. Um, so that that was the place that as I said I'd always wanted to work. And once I got there, I thought, well. The only way they're going to get me out of here is carrying me out when I'm, you know, 97 and saying, "Hold on, I just got to make one more change to my story." Uh, <laughs> the, didn't quite work that way, but 25 years and 42 days um, was a reasonable, a reasonable stint. The the Herald and the Telegraph obviously have a have a big battle over the years, but one thing that that the Sydney Morning Herald is never really rivaled on is its arts coverage, and and during. The 90s and, and that early 2000s, I mean, the Herald just is the Bible for a, for an arts and music and entertainment lover, is it not? It was. You know, uh, the it took art seriously and it, it gave it space and it gave it prominence. Um, it was still a struggle because you're still talking about people, a lot of editors at newspapers anywhere tend to come out of uh, business and politics and they see sport and and arts as important parts of the paper, even if they don't necessarily like or enjoy them. More likely, they'll they're sports followers, but then not all of them, not many of them, are as interested in arts. And so it was still a struggle. You still had to fight because if anything had to be cut for any reason, if the paper got a bit smaller, if if there were two stories vying for a for a page up front of the book and you know, the first ten pages of the paper. Um, and one of them was an art story, they'll probably use the art story would be the one that would, would get cut. But it was this exciting time when money was everywhere. People were prepared to advertise. People were prepared to devote two, three, four pages to to arts, um, which is astonishing to think about now. Um, but for a while there, it was it was a great time to be in newspapers. I guess one of the critical things of newspapers too around that time is reviews because this is pre, you know, everyone being able to have their say on social media and websites and, and whatnot. So readers often did, you know, um, decide whether they're buying, whether it be a, an album or a ticket to a concert or whatever, based on the reviews that, that landed in the paper. They did. Um, though, again, it's really interesting to see how the attitudes to those things evolved through that period. Um, when I started at at the Herald, they, they ran a review, a CD review or a couple of CD reviews at the back of the TV guide. Um, so the, the, the last page of the TV guide, after you got through all the programs for the week, there was a couple of little things there uh, on, the, on music. That was, that was it for reviews. They didn't think reviews were that important. One of the fights that a couple of people had, one of them being, so this sort of entwined lives, the guy that I mentioned who I used to read and, and bitch about, um, then we both ended up at the Herald, and he and I, and, and, a, and his name was John Kazimer, who's now a big a big wheel in television production, uh, and Bruce Elder, who is the older, much older, experienced music journalist. We all fought for the the idea uh, and the space for reviews as something to take to take seriously. Book reviews were happening. Mm. Uh, books were seen as important, but music was a struggle, and over time, uh, I snuck them into Metro when I was editing it, um, and then we uh, they created the Saturday section, and we said, why don't we put music in here? And so music reviews became something, and this you know, music of all types, uh, became something that seemed, was seen as part of the 
part of the, the menu that you would, you should have with a newspaper. And people would take those things seriously. Uh, people did what I did. When I was when I was younger, I'd, I'd read the a live review in the Herald or you know, the occasional CD review uh, or read them elsewhere and think, I want to know more. I'd go and buy it. And people would do that with the Herald. I, I used to hear a lot from uh, retailers that, that people would come in holding your review that cut out of the paper that morning or the uh, Saturday, brought it in and said, um, do you have that? I want to get that. Um, it it had it had an impact. I mean, we're we're not talking massive. It's not like Australia was anything like the UK or US, mm. where reviews of arts generally and music music was seen as as a really important part of life. We're talking a small number. Uh, the number of people who read uh, the Herald, the read newspapers for a start, was not huge the percentage of those who read the herald was uh, smaller the people who read the herald who cared about music was again smaller still and then those who might read those reviews and go and do something but it still had an impact um what people used to say to me you 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 must have um be able to influence the way people do things i said we what we couldn't do was was stop someone you read about newspapers in new york for example shutting down stage shows mm. when they got a really bad review or um artists in the uk whose careers would would uh, crumble when the nme or melody maker would would trash them it wasn't like that in australia uh, we couldn't stop you buying somebody we thought was rubbish but we could encourage you and bring to light people you wouldn't have heard about elsewhere um, and that was my mission to to cover a lot of people who I thought readers would know like if they got to know. All of that said, during this period, you certainly develop a reputation as one of um, the the best known music critics and writers in the country. Is there a responsibility attached to that? First of all, do you feel? But also, it, it must be a difficult. I always look at entertainment. Anything within the arts world is so subjective. So you saying, well, this is you know, a brilliant album, someone's going to listen to it and say, well, what's he talking about? Like, it is such a subjective thing. How do you handle that side of being a, a music critic? Uh, laugh. Um, <laughs> this was this uh, back in the days when you'd, you'd get abusive letters, not not uh, emails or social mm. media uh, comments. And I've got a big, thick file of uh, sometimes complimentary, uh, often not, because people like that they wouldn't necessarily feel the urge to write to you uh, but when they disagreed they would mm. uh, they get angry and type out something or handwrite something and, and send it to you um i think the the criticism that comes back at you as a critic and the objections and and sometimes the abuse you've got to take that um in a couple of ways you've got to accept it that that's what's going to happen people have different opinions and people get very emotional about things and i react to music emotionally as well as intellectually and i shouldn't be surprised when other people do um, and i respect that as as a difference of opinion um but also you've, you've just got to accept that sometimes people get a little unhinged hmm. um when when you said i just said i didn't think it was that good um it doesn't mean that that you as someone who likes it uh, is an idiot because you like it it just means it didn't work for me um, but overall you've just got to take the, the idea that you've got a responsibility to a number of people you've got a responsibility to the art that you're responding to to take it seriously enough that that you respect what it's trying to do and then judge whether it's doing it well explain why it's it's doing it well or why it's not doing well so respect that you uh, you've got an obligation to the artist who's made that art to to give them time and thought um, but most importantly you've got a, a, resp a, a responsibility to the people who are reading you or listening to you to give them honesty uh, and over time the only way you you earn respect is by proving that you can I can do something with with respect for the art and the readers. Um, did, did you ever have artists ringing into the uh, to the newsroom, the uh, you know, fresh from reading a review in the in the paper to uh, to, to share their views on that? Yeah, 
yep, uh, a couple of times, and I've been confronted a few times um, at at gigs by by people. Um, one of those was a really interesting experience, and an artist who had been out drinking all day. I think he'd been at the cricket, and I saw him at a gig in the early evening, and he'd been drinking all day, and um, we encountered each other. And uh, this, luckily, this is back when you didn't necessarily know what a journalist looked like. Uh, I love those days. Uh, photo bylines, I think, <laughs> the most thing that have happened in journalism. Um, but anyway, uh, someone identified me, and he had to be dragged away from me. He was probably going to hit me. Um, but he didn't normally get that bad. Mm. Um, but people would object. Um, Tim Friedman, who, from the Whitlams, uh, um, I don't think he'd mind me telling, telling this story. He called up the editor and said, I was about to do an interview. I was going to do an interview. Uh, no, I was going to review. And he said, I don't want any, I don't want Bernard Zoll doing it. Can you get anybody else? Because I think he hates me. Um, and a couple of years later, when I finally interviewed him, I said, why did you do that? Uh, he said, well, I thought you hated him. I said, I didn't even know you. Um, I had, I didn't hate you. I'd, I'd made a brief comment in a review of somebody else about a Whitlam song, just saying that, that Whitlam song was that kind of you know, the song that the people love on Triple J. It wasn't a negative comment. That's what it was. But he saw it as as uh, a sign that that I must hate him, and uh, try to to stop the editor from uh, from giving me the the, the review. Um, mostly, people would confine their their anger to to letters. Um, I've got a few letters from from people. Um, I've got a letter actually from someone who was objecting his musician and a producer whose work I ended up finding really dull but I didn't really know him at the time mm. and he wrote a letter to the paper objecting to what I'd written about another artist I'd written a <laughs> review of Paul Kelly and he wrote in high dudgeon um, he's just appalled that, that I could have said anything negative about Paul Kelly um, and um, went over several pages, explained all of my personal and professional uh, deficiencies, and suggested that I, I consider a career in in uh, I think it maybe in road road building um, as as an alternative to what <laughs> to, to what I clearly wasn't any good at. Um, now, the the most amusing thing about that is, I mean, that lead was very funny, um, and as it turned out. I think I was pretty right because that was a, a lull in Paul Kelly's career, and uh, I was, remember meeting his label manager a little a little after that. And he said to me, "We'd all been saying the same thing inside the record company at the time that this just wasn't working." And Paul Paul Kelly eventually switched his career around. He moved to some different people. He started doing things differently. But anyway, the the point of that is that. It's not like I was on, on my own thinking that Paul Kelly was, was in a bit of a rut in his writing at the time and needed to change. But this guy who had written this angry letter um, quite a few years later, by which time I'd written a fairly scathing review of one of his records, um, a mutual friend uh, introduced, was, was talking to him at, at um, the ARI Awards. It was late in the evening um, and she'd had a lot to drink and, and uh, just said, hey, Bernard, come over. As I walked past and I knew who he was. He knew who I was. And I was thinking, I can't, but anyway, I can't say no. So he said, oh, say hello to, uh, I won't say his name. And we stood there awkwardly looking at each other um, before I could extricate myself from the conversation. And uh, we, I don't think we even said anything. And uh, stupidly enough, six months later at another awards, the same woman in the same conversation with him did the same thing <laughs> and we had to we had to stand there looking at each other and um, trying not to say to her stop doing this to us um but it's a small it's a small place it's a small industry uh you're going to run into these people um and it's the same in 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 any mm. environment in in australia sport politics uh uh music art literature you know there's there's only um, a small country here with the relatively small number of people and and if you write about the area you're going to run into these people um, and you just gotta just gotta hope that that you've done enough that people won't punch you out in indeed now 
the industry um, changes dramatically in the whole period that you're at the you know SMH. If you looked at the the start from uh, 1992 to when you finished up there um, officially in, in 2017, um, the the changes to the actual industry obviously very significant, particularly in terms of digital. The you know by the time um, you know the mid the mid sort of uh, period of your time there starts often, obviously, I guess, you know, iPods and whatever else replacing CD players and, and record yeah. players. But what would you say was the biggest change that you that you saw during that period? Technology-wise or overall? Just overall. Well, actually, I think part of the answer might be something I was going to say before about one of the things that changed, not enough, but one of the things that changed uh, at places like the Herald was that eventually it had to start looking outside its core area mm. now, western sydney when i came to to the herald i was pretty much the only person um, who who had come from uh, western sydney there were three of us there who who lived or grew up or uh, had worked in in western sydney or out of western sydney uh, and most people there went to the same sort of schools, lived in the same sort of areas that their parents had and um, had grown up reading the Herald and the Herald covered their their world. Places like the Penrith didn't cover, uh, like the Herald didn't cover Penrith. Hmm. It didn't barely got to Parramatta. Um, and so one of the things I think that, that really challenged the media and it changed, though I still think not enough, was a recognition that Sydney wasn't just eastern suburbs low north shore or the inner west eventually uh, that it, it involved a really massively diverse city that had completely different world experiences uh, life experiences because, as i said i you know i grew up in um fairfield bankstown area mm. and go into the city for my entertainment um because it was we still this is back in the days when you might you'd still get bands coming out to, to western sydney you'd, you'd see that you didn't uh, you you could live in multiple places but by the 90s um i my sister lives um and my parents live from blacktown and then further out in the newer estates there and they don't have to come to the city and a lot mm. of them a lot of people didn't uh so I think the biggest change I found in Sydney uh, and then in the media was um, a recognition that Sydney was many different places with many different perspectives and you just couldn't be, um, you couldn't, there couldn't be one Sydney and it really matters, um, but it takes a long time for the media in particular to realise that. So the technology and all those things that happened, I mean, the, the biggest change in technology was in uh, the media getting hit by the thing that it hit music and that's, that's, uh, that hit television, and uh, which is digital mm. and access to everything, where the world the world suddenly became so, so, much access, so much more accessible and for not a lot of effort. Um, and that meant that fewer people would buy the newspaper and fewer people would watch free free to air television and um, if you wanted to watch your, your rugby league you'd have to go you'd, you know, you'd, you'd go pay but you would get all the games um, all the, that newspapers got decimated by by uh, digital technology and the fact that you could get all these things free uh, just as music had um, and I remember the newspapers, media generally mocking the music industry for its failure to to foresee what was going to yeah. happen what was coming with digital only to have them themselves smacked in the face by the same thing Absolutely. but yeah, the a... condition with those things is that um the world the world came crashing in in a way that couldn't be helped but um we suddenly realized that the world didn't look like what we thought it did the, the world wasn't divided into people who read newspapers and people who didn't, people who lived in eastern Sydney and people who lived in western Sydney, um, but we were all the same. In fact, there's whole existences that, that live separate from from the others and 
making media work is like making the city work. You've actually got to find those connections in all these places while pre pre while presenting a, a niche, uh, something that separates you from the rest. So it's a really weird balance that no one's yet worked out how to do. I mentioned that your uh, your time at the Sydney Morning Herald, your, your very long career at the Sydney Morning Herald, ends in 2017. How does that come about, given that you, you mentioned earlier you essentially wanted to be carried out of there in a box? Yeah, I realised that um, the box might come sooner than I <laughs> planned. Uh, it, uh, it, newspapers were, were cutting staff every year. People were going. And uh, I realised that the way the paper was heading... It was clear that that arts was not going to be as important to them as it, it had been. That they um, were not the people who are now running the, the place won't appreciating <laughs> appreciating me and the, sure. the people like me. Not necessarily personally, but they didn't see it as that important. And I thought I want to get out while I still can and make a choice to get out uh, rather than wait until they tap me on the shoulder and say where we're asking you and others to leave um, and also it seemed like a time i could get out while i still was you know, still had my own teeth and could could still uh, remember my name mm. and so get get some work outside it was just it was inevitable and and the way the paper has gone in the years since i since i left sort of confirmed the the wisdom of that you know, it's it's not a place where uh, you could do what I did, which was work full time in in arts and even more specifically in music. You just you just can't do that. When you finished up last few days there, are you someone who is very reflective? Were you emotional about it, or was it very matter of fact? What kind of what, oh, what kind of emotion follows you around that time? Oh, I was emotional. Um, I mean, the, the fact that I can remember is twenty five years and forty two days it tells you that it wasn't. <laughs> yes. uh, it wasn't a little thing. Um, I didn't want to go. In an ideal world, I'd, I'd still be there now. I wish I was still there uh, in some ways, uh, though I'm really happy that I left. But I, I reflected. In fact, I, I wrote a piece for the paper, um, quite indulgent of them and, and, and indulging me. Uh, but I wrote about what those 25 years had meant for me. and um, And that was about tapping into a world in a way that, that thrilled me and I got to share it with people. Um, so the, the people who'd, who'd broken ground before me, uh, the people around me who had done some really interesting things and being able to, to work at a paper where uh, you, know, you could look around and be Kate McClymont or yeah. um, uh, Roy Masters in, in, his, in his prime and um, a lot of great journalists and I thought I couldn't have asked for a better place to be in Australia, and um, but and I don't want to go, but it is the right thing to do. Of course, following that though, you, you very much stay in the industry and um, continue to, to freelance. Um, obviously, it's something that you don't want to let go of. I mean, it's these things often generally aren't just a career; they they become a way of life. Yeah, um, you know how people will often say. Uh, and they're usually the rich people and the hugely successful people. I love this so much. I'd do it for free. I'd play football for free. I'd, yeah. I'd you know, I'd play for Australia in cricket for free. I'd, I'd make films for free. Well, these days as a journalist, that's what I'm doing. <laughs> it's, <laughs> it's almost like that. I mean, I, I work as a freelance journalist, but journal, journalism is, if I was dependent on journalism to feed me, I'd, um, well, I'd be living in a, in a caravan, <laughs> um, eating eating tin corn, um, it just doesn't pay. It certainly doesn't pay enough. Um, uh, and of course, you started therefore lecturing in um, in music journalism. So the next era of journalists um, coming through, what are, what are they like? Because because a lot of these people who are who are studying it would have only ever known um digital uh for, to get their yeah. music would have never experienced those um you know going to a either a major shopping center and there being three and four record stores or heading into the city and those secondhand record stores that, that littered the whole place um they, they would never have experienced that exactly the idea of of paying for uh, for your music 
It's only just started to come back. The idea of paying for your news, that's a big struggle for a lot of people. Uh, and you're talking, you say, a generation who, who had never opened a paper in their lives, mm. um, maybe in a family that, that had them, but they never bothered with them. And um, it's a really interesting experience talking to them. I mean, the first thing I do, the first lecture uh, or the first tutorial each year, I, I say to them, well, what is it? What do you read? And where do you read? And, and why do you read it? And a lot of times, the, the, I'd say a good third to a half of them say, no, actually, I don't read. And I'm them, I don't understand. How could you want to be a journalist, but you mm -hmm. don't read? You don't read the newspapers. Oh, well, you know, I get my news from this. It's, yeah, but you, if you want to be a journalist, you've actually got to consume journalism. You can't, it's like saying you, you want to be, you want to be a musician, but you um, you don't actually listen to music. Well, how, how are you going to know how mm. things are done and what people are, what's happening in the world around you in, in your field? Uh, but it's still weird to find really enthusiastic people. Now, one of the things about journalism and arts, uh, also, let's say journalism, communications, is that it's become the kind of arts degree of of this century mm. in the 80s people did uh, 80s and 90s people did arts because they weren't sure what else they wanted to do uh, so they do an, they get an arts degree communications is one of those areas where a lot of people who do communications end up doing uh, things that have nothing to do with journalism for a start uh, maybe not even um, publicity they're they're in marketing or they move into other areas uh, so not everybody who's doing journalism actually wants to be a journalist but when you find those who do it's weirdly exciting still as much as people said to me what what's your advice for people who want to be journalists don't um and <laughs> what if you want to be a music journalist are you mad don't <laughs> um you, you find these people who say like i did um i don't care i mean i started my journalism career writing at night and at weekends mm. and um I had a full-time job and I did all this, I did this in my time because that's, I wanted to do it. And I'm still doing this now because this is what I love. This is what I do. I feel, I feel a, a calling to it. And when you find that in, in the next generation, it's exciting because they still want to make a difference or they still want to have an impact or they still want to communicate uh, and dream about, um, being that conduit between an artist and, and an audience, which is what arts journalism is all about. And what about music? Um, at this stage of your career, do you still get excited about a, an artist bringing out a new album, a new track dropping? Um, it obviously drops in different ways these days, but um, you know, an artist that you might have loved for 30, 40 years or a new artist, um, do, you, do you still get excited about new material? Oh, yeah, extremely. Um, and it's one of the things that, that I that I say to people that when you stop being excited by the fact that, that you might discover new music, whether it's new music that's uh, released by an artist now or music you didn't know that came out in 1971 or 1951 or, or 1991, uh, when you stop being excited by that, that's when you should stop being an arts journalist uh, because a music journalist because you should have a... Uh, the capacity to be excited and to want to know. Uh, so I, yesterday, I spent a couple of hours in the morning online buying some uh, some records from a local record store and and online record store, uh, which cost you know, a few hundred bucks um, because I'd read about them. Some of them old records I I wanted to have. Mm. I still buy records. I still yeah. buy CDs. I don't. Uh, and I pay for streaming services. I never actually downloaded. When it was free, I didn't like doing it. Um, and when uh, you could pay for downloading, I thought, well, yeah, I could do that, but I'd actually rather have it as a CD or as a record because I'm old. I like having things <laughs> in my hands. I like being able to put it on when I want. And also, I don't trust the streaming services to have music for me when I want it uh, into the future. We're all going to get a shock or not all of us, but some people are going to get a shock in a few years when the music that they thought they could just get any time they want 
they have no access to and they don't own that music anymore and they, they can't get it. What about artists? What's your view on artists? There's a, there's a few I know um, in the country world, Garth Brooks, for example, who's just not on the streaming services at all. Do you have a, a respect for those, those people that kind of want to say, well, no, I, I want it you know, on my terms? I do. I, re- I respect that. And I think um, if you can do that, that's great. Mm-hmm. Um, you're still putting your music out. People can get to you in the way they want. Unfortunately, you can't do that if you're um, if you're not a big artist. Mm. You've got to you've got to how are you, how are you going to find your market if you're not on the streaming services? It, they rip you off. They're, they're they're a terrible service, but it's like democracy. Um, you know, it's the worst governing system. Um, it's an impossible governing system. But it's still better than the alternatives. Yeah. Uh, the streaming services for now are the best option we have for getting music out there. Um, and if you're an artist and you want someone to hear, you've got to, you've got to make your music available to them in some way. You can't rely on radio. Radio doesn't play uh, music. Uh, certainly doesn't play new music in any way that's going to be helpful. Mm. Um, the TV shows that, uh, that used to play music, they don't exist anymore. Uh, newspapers and magazines hardly cover music. So how are you going to get your music out there? You've got to be on the places where people are. Uh, the fight has to be not to replace the streaming services unless someone has the brilliant idea. It's to make those streaming services behave better and, mm. and pay artists to um, to live. I mean, one of the things I often say at the end of, of a review is buy this, don't stream it. Feed, feed an artist. Absolutely. Because if you want them to make a record and two years from now that, that uh, because you love their music they've got to be able to eat between now and then indeed look it's a fascinating career a fascinating industry the question we always finish with though how would uh, Bernard Zool like to be remembered <laughs> um, oh my god um, I'd say fondly but this is <laughs> someone who cared someone who, someone who got excited by things um, and conveyed that excitement to others well, it's an intriguing career that, uh, that had much of its roots here in Penrith at the uh, at the Penrith Press newspaper. Bernard, thank you very much for joining us and, um, and all the best for the, the many uh, reviews still to come. Thank you. Go the Panthers, even though I'm not a fan. <laughs> I'm sure, I'm sure we could convert you. Thank you very much, Bernard. Appreciate it. And uh, I hope you enjoyed our chat. On the Record is produced by The Western Weekender. To hear future episodes, search Western Weekender wherever you listen to podcasts and make sure you hit subscribe. And, of course, go back. We have dozens of editions of On the Record now. Check out westernweekender.com.au and we'll see you next time.